0: So this morning, I'll be reading from the book of Matthew, um, chapter 25. And it's verses 31 through 40. And so this is Jesus speaking. When he finally arrives, blazing in beauty and all his angels with him, the Son of Man will take his place on his glorious throne. Then all the nations will be arranged before him, and he will sort the people out, much as a shepherd sorts out sheep and goats, putting sheep to his right and goats to his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, enter you who are blessed by my father. Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation. And here's why. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was homeless, and you gave me a room. I was shivering, and you gave me clothes. I was sick, and you stopped to visit. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then those sheep are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will say, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone, overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. The word of the Lord, sorry.
1: Good morning, let me add my welcome, I'm Mike Stroh, one of the pastors here, and it's our joy to gather together and worship as we turn to God's Word. Matthew 25, in the passage you just heard read, if you have a Bible in front of you or on your phone or other device, Matthew 25. Well, I'm sure you've heard about those people referred to as preppers. You may consider yourself a prepper. Uh, once uh, more viewed a little bit on the fringes of society, maybe, have, in recent years, moved much more into the mainstream. You may have seen the show Doomsday Preppers. Granted, those are more extreme examples. But these are people who seek to be prepared for the future. Uh, Many of them often stockpile uh, water and food and other basic needs and supplies to be prepared for a crisis. There's, of course, a spectrum of preparedness, so I don't want to paint with a broad brush here. This can range from just having a well-stocked pantry all the way to having an underground bunker with 30 years of supplies. There's a wide range, right? Every prepper is different, and that's largely because we don't know what the future holds, do we? So naturally, there are people seeking to prepare themselves for all sorts of possible futures a toilet paper shortage, a nuclear apocalypse. There's a wide range. recently heard some about someone with a really unique way of prepping. Their strategy is eating poison ivy. Have you heard about this? I didn't know this was a thing. I looked it up. It's a thing. Start with really trace amounts of poison ivy in their diet, gradually adding more and more to build up immunity. And I'm wondering, I'm ignorant, of this, whole, of this whole thing. I'm ignorant of what future scenario this is prepping for. I need someone to tell me what this is prepping for. Is, there going to, uh, is the fear that poison ivy will suddenly become the only remaining food source? Well, we have to make our clothes out of poison ivy. I'm wondering, what's the deal? What's the deal with the poison ivy? And frankly, I'm not sure I'd want to survive that future. But now, no judgment if you consider yourself a prepper. I know I'm gonna get a few emails over this. Um, Our family shops at Costco, so that at least gives me an honorary prepper (laughs) status, doesn't it? But I share this example to raise a question, because being prepared is, of course, wise. It's responsible. But how do we know what preparation is time well spent? Is it stocking up on water? Is it eating poison ivy? Is it something else? What is the priority? There's all sorts of things that we could do to prepare. Of course, we can't answer that for sure because we don't know what the future holds. But when it comes to being prepared for Christ's return, and yes, there are many, many things that we as Christians can and should do to prepare for his return, to live in light of his return, but what is the priority? What does it really mean? What is Jesus expecting of us when he says, be ready. Well, in the spiritual life, we can have a bit more certainty here, because Jesus tells us. We continue our series in Matthew, as Jesus has been teaching in these last few chapters. This is the final section of teaching in Matthew's gospel, and he's been teaching us to be ready for his return, as we heard last week. In our passage this morning, he reveals a little bit more about what to expect and how we can be ready. In our passage this morning, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the future, of his return, and how we should prioritize our time as we seek to be prepared for his return. And let's pray together as we turn to this passage. Our Father, we thank you for this time to gather and worship. We thank you for... Jesus, and these powerful words, I pray that they would penetrate our hearts and minds this morning, even if we we've heard these words a thousand times. I pray that these words would sink deeply into our hearts, that your spirit would move, that because of our time together, the way that your spirit is at work, we would be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so be with us as we Turn to this passage in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So let's look at Matthew 25, uh, starting in verse 31. I'm reading from the ESV. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. Let's stop for just a moment and notice a few things. This passage gives us a glimpse of Jesus' return. Some see the imagery here and consider this a parable, but it doesn't seem to be a parable other than the uh, shepherding imagery. This seems like a straightforward teaching. Jesus is saying this is going to happen. And like other places that Jesus teaches about this coming day, he doesn't give us the whole picture all at once. So he's just describing one aspect of this day. He's using imagery that his hearers and readers would be familiar with. And this is important because we shouldn't try to build our entire theology of the last days from one passage, and certainly not only from this one. We do that with all of Scripture's teaching. And so let's not be troubled by maybe what's missing here, because we don't see in this passage... Uh, Christ's atoning work on the cross. We don't see uh, his grace in saving us explicitly mentioned here. And that's okay because Jesus is making a very specific focus here. And so let's remember that we need to interpret passages like these, all, all of these passages, in light of the gospel as a whole. And also notice the way that Jesus takes Old Testament pictures of the day of the Lord. And he takes them further. The expectation was that God, of course, would be judge, and he will be, but specifically here, Jesus reveals that the judge is Messiah himself. Jesus is the one who will sit as judge, and here we see that all nations will be judged before God, standing before Jesus, not just the Gentiles, as some Jews may have hoped or expected, And we see here that a person's place in this kingdom is not determined by ethnicity. It's not determined by law-keeping. But here it's shown to be a relationship with the king himself that is key. Specifically, that's borne out in how they treat his people. And like we heard last week, this teaching is not meant to give us a play-by-play roadmap to fill in the blanks on our end times charts. That's not the kind of prepping that Jesus has in mind here head knowledge, just satisfying our curiosity, cracking the code, whatever it is that we might be tempted to reduce God's word to. The point is that we might be spiritually prepared for righteous living while we wait. It's to call sinners to repentance. It's to give God's people hope that Jesus will one day return as he promised to bring complete and perfect justice. And that's the picture we get first in this teaching. Jesus coming back in glory and sitting on a throne, a glorious throne. In his first coming, he came primarily in humility as the suffering servant dying on a cross for us. At his second coming, pictured here, his glory will be on full display as he establishes this justice once and for all. And all people will stand before this king, this rightful king. King. Verse 32 says he will separate the people of all nations into two distinct groups. Just like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Now shepherds would understand this image very well. Sheep and goats would often graze together. But at the end of the day, they would have to be separated. Many point out that goats are a little more sensitive to the cold, so in the evening they would need to be taken to a, another place. But let's not make too much of these labels, though in popular culture and maybe in art, the sheep and the goats has sort of taken on uh, more significance uh, than it probably deserves. But this is just a shepherding image to help us see the separation. And the right side versus the left, the right side is just a symbol of uh, favor in the ancient world. Just as Jesus is said to be now sitting at the Father's right hand, Not necessarily sitting physically, literally, on his right side as opposed to his left, but Jesus is sitting in a place of favor and blessing and exaltation with God the Father. So let's look at how he speaks of this blessed group, starting in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So Jesus extends this incredible invitation in this scene that he's giving us a glimpse of to these blessed ones. The Greek verb for inherit here points to this ongoing state of blessedness. Enter a kingdom of blessing without end. This verb is also helpful for keeping us from misunderstanding this passage. Some have taken what follows to suggest that we earn our sheep status by the good works that are described here. But think about it. Something inherited is not earned. That's the whole point of an inheritance, isn't it? If you receive an inheritance... It's based on who you are in the family, not what you've done, not what you've achieved or accomplished. It's a gift. Jesus is saying that those who belong to the Father, those who are blessed of the Father, by the Father, with the Father, get this incredible inheritance. And it's a kingdom that has been prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Again, long before they ever did any good works, or before they were even born, God had this in view. But that doesn't mean these works aren't important. In fact, they're central to this teaching. This is what Jesus is emphasizing in this particular teaching. But remember, he's not saying these works earn them their place, but rather these works are the evidence of who they are in Christ. He's commending them for living the life of a sheep. And this life, it seems, according to Jesus, includes serving him directly in these ways, feeding him, giving him drink when he's thirsty, welcoming him, clothing him, visiting him while sick and in prison. And of course, as we heard, this raises a question in our minds and in the minds of those present in this scene on the king's right side. Look at verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. When did we ever do this for you, Jesus? They're confused. They're surprised. Well, he says they did it for him when they did these acts of kindness to the least of these his brothers, which is better translated brothers and sisters. The sheep here are called the righteous. As the rest of the New Testament teaches, we are made righteous by the grace of God. He's transformed his people into those who do the works of grace and mercy for others, to reflect the grace and mercy that he has shown them. Now, don't miss their surprise. Again, another reason why this passage is not teaching salvation by works, their surprise, they weren't living their life, they weren't doing these works in hopes of achieving anything, in hopes of earning anything this inheritance they're surprised they were simply living this way of life as disciples of christ of course a big question here is who are these people that jesus is talking about who are the least of these who are these brothers and sisters that were called to serve there's really just two options it's either it's everybody who's in need as some translations seem to suggest Or it's specifically God's people, the disciples of Christ, who have need. Of course, serving all people in need is central to discipleship, it's near to the heart of God. We see this all throughout Scripture, but in this context, it seems clear Jesus means specifically serving his sheep, his other sheep. In Matthew chapter 10, he told his disciples that whoever receives you receives me, he said. And in chapter 12, he told us that his brothers and his sisters and his family are who? Those who do the will of his Father. So how do we rightly prepare for Christ's coming? Look for those who are hungry and thirsty. Look for the strangers, the materially poor, the sick, the imprisoned, the insignificant in the eyes of the world, Jesus is saying, and show them grace and show them mercy. Both Christians and non-Christians, of course, The emphasis here is on Christians because Jesus is showing, he's teaching his disciples how close he is to them, to comfort them when these trials come, and they will. So both the one suffering and the one serving is comforted here in this passage. It's incredible by these words, because don't miss this. Jesus says, if you are suffering, I'm standing with you in your suffering. That's why when we're served by others, Jesus is being served too. He has to be, because he's with us. He's standing with us. That's how he is served here. He's inseparably connected with us, especially in our struggles, in our trials, in our griefs, in our suffering. And when we are the one who is serving, even when it's, maybe especially when, it's someone difficult, when it's someone different than us, when we get no thanks or reward, we know that we are serving Jesus Christ himself. Now this formula of feeding and clothing and helping and visiting, we see it repeated four times in this one passage. So that repetition tells us it's to be remembered for discipleship. This, of course, isn't everything that Christians should care about. But it seems like Jesus is saying pretty clearly here, this is a priority in the Christian life. If this is the evidence Jesus will cite on Judgment Day, that tells me it's a priority. We don't have to be surprised on that day because he tells us right here what he's going to be looking for, what he's going to be commending. But there's, of course, another group that Jesus addresses. The picture here is pretty stark. It's just the opposite of what we've seen so far. Look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So instead of blessed, this group is called cursed, separated from the Father, rather than in this inheriting family relationship. While the kingdom was prepared for the sheep, for God's people from the foundation of the world, the wicked here, the unrighteous, will inherit a place not even prepared for them. What a picture. But it was prepared for the devil and his angels. That this eternal fire wasn't even prepared for them emphasizes that they're there by their own choice, despite their surprise. And remember, just like with the righteous, what follows is not how they earned their place, but it's the evidence to show who they are. They've rejected the grace of Christ, and so the grace of Christ would not be at work in them. Jesus Christ would not be living his life through them and reflecting the grace and mercy toward others. It's just not present. But they, too, are surprised. They've been so focused on themselves in their life, they didn't even notice the needs around them. Their sin here is a sin of omission, a failure to do what is right. With the great commandment fresh on our minds from a few weeks back, a few chapters back, they have failed the most important thing in life, loving God and loving neighbor. Instead of seeing Jesus in the faces of the needy, of the insignificant, they have either ignored them or they have even done them harm themselves. In this case, the presence of Jesus with his suffering people is not a comforting thing, it's a scary thing. It's a sobering thing for the one causing the suffering. Remember when Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, what did he say? Why are you persecuting me? There again, Jesus is present with his people. What we do to God's people, we are doing to Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus closes this teaching by repeating these two eternal destinies, two groups, two eternal destinies, eternal punishment Or eternal life. There's no in-between. There's no room for purgatory in this passage or really in any other in all the scripture. You're either in Christ or you're not. Jesus doesn't give us much detail here about hell, but it's enough. It's clear that eternity is at stake. So if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not sure what it means to follow Jesus, I implore you to take these words seriously. Look past the temptation to just be offended and just ignore these words. Eternity is at stake, according to Jesus. This is why he came, and in John 3, he says he didn't come into this world to condemn. He came into this world that the world might be saved. That's the message. That's the hope. That's the invitation. And despite the really bad example of many Christians, sometimes who get this wrong and think it's our job to condemn, Jesus didn't come to say, you're a goat. Deal with it. You're condemned. No, he came to offer his grace and his mercy to us. And he's called us as his followers to do the same. This teaching is significant in Matthew's gospel because remember, it's the final teaching of Jesus before he goes to the cross, before his passion. So Jesus leaves us with this picture of the life of a righteous person serving others so selflessly that they're surprised when Jesus brings it up on Judgment Day. And so let's resist the temptation to misuse this passage in in so many ways, it's been misused think we just need to do more good to maybe uh, earn a spot on the right team. This passage is about living out our salvation, not earning it. We can never use this passage to support an us-versus-them mindset, thinking the goats of this world are our enemies. Labeling people as an excuse to judge and to condemn, especially today, in our polarized Climate, it is scary how this attitude so easily comes out of many Christians. And that couldn't be further from the teaching of Jesus and the example of Jesus. Too many Christians seem to think their job is fighting God's battles for him or throwing stones at those they disagree with. If we want to go back to our prepper imagery, this is worse than eating poison ivy. In the spiritual life because it's not just harming you it's harming the witness of the whole church jesus tells us right here what the priority is it's not fighting goats it's showing grace it's showing mercy and so let's be comforted in our suffering because jesus tells us he promises us right here he is with us in our suffering Be on the lookout. Be active. Be intentional to look for people in your life who are struggling. Look for people that you can serve with grace and mercy. Hey, if you want to be closer to Jesus, serve the suffering. Because Jesus said that's where he is. And we do this with freedom in Christ. Not for recognition. Not for thanks. And so this week... Be in prayer. Ask God who you can serve. Maybe it's a simple note of encouragement. Maybe it's a text. Maybe it's reaching out with a financial gift or helping someone who's struggling with their basic needs. It could be a visit or a phone call to somebody who's sick or struggling or someone in prison. If you have opportunity, seek out ways to serve anonymously and know that you are serving Jesus Christ himself. This week I came across a definition of a prepper on a prominent prepper website, and they say that a prepper is someone who has a distinct interest in preparing for and surviving emergencies. And that phrase, distinct interest, jumped out at me. What should be our distinct interest as followers of Christ preparing for The future that Jesus tells us about right here. What are we known for? What makes us distinct as followers of Christ? Jesus teaches that our distinct interest should be being his hands and his feet to those around us, serving the least of his brothers and sisters as he has served us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your love that despite our sin that has earned us separation from you, you loved us so much that you sent your son to save us. And so, Father, renew our amazement, the fact that Jesus has made us members of your family, that our inheritance is a kingdom without end and without end of its blessing in your presence. Help us to let go of our selfishness, our pride, all the things that get in the way of the kind of gracious living that your people are to be known for that would make us distinct. Spirit, open our eyes to the needs around us this week, even today. Free us to show the grace and mercy of Christ to all we meet. For his glory, we pray. Amen. Let's stand.